Okay, I didn't mind this. The reason I say this, and the reason I'm opening... Hi, by the way. It's Tony Mazur. Check your brain podcast here today. My guest is Lucas Miles. He's the host of the Lucas Miles Show. He's from the Influence Network. He's a pastor, and he's also the author of the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And one thing about... uh, that, that kind of bothered me over the years is the amount of music and singing and stuff in church. And I get it. And I actually don't mind that song. I listened to it when I was in, I think it was in like sixth, seventh and eighth grade that one of our religion teacher was like, Oh no, we're going to play some music because God is cool. And Jesus is cool. He's your friend. And it's kind of like that, that teacher that you have that just like starts talking about historical figures, but updates the terms for you. Like, you know, that Joan of Arc, she really was just a badass. She just, okay, wow, great. You know, like, you know, and saying like, uh, you know, kind of like, you know how Goliath was like Thanos, and it's, it's, shut up, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about uh, your modern day terminology for for religion. Uh, It should be what it is, and that's kind of what happened with the Catholic Church with the uh, the Vatican II Council, and it's become very mm, eh, sanitized over time, I guess. So I, I, I get a chance to talk to uh, Lucas Miles about his book, and, and not only just that, not only just the singing, because I say in the interview, I didn't really like going to church and hearing a concert. I went to church to go to church. You know, novel concept. So we get to talk about that. Uh, basically, the secularism that you get to see in uh, and throughout all of Christianity, especially in the last year, I asked him about the messaging in uh, in Christianity over the last year with the with the COVID nineteen pandemic and uh, uh, what the church can do going forward to try to attract new and younger members. Or is this just what it is? Are people my age and younger, the Gen Z and the millennials, are they just people that they believe in science and they believe in crystals and they believe in astrology and numerology that just don't believe in an organized religion? Even though, if you think about it, they're kind of believing in a religion too. Dr. Fauci is basically a patron saint to some of the. <clears throat> it's like Fauci and Jesus is somewhere way down the list. Dr. Fauci may as well be John the Baptist. So talking about all that kind of stuff and progressivism and secularism and how that's kind of evaded, and I should say invaded, the churches from the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, Baptists, and, you know, what we do going forward. So here's my interview with Lucas Miles, which if you're signed up on Patreon and you're listening to this right now on Patreon, it means you heard it basically, I think, uh, what, about two hours after I got done doing the interview because I had another interview I had to record, mix it down, produce it, make it sound all pretty. But if you're listening for free on uh, Apple or iTunes, or, you know, I, Apple iTunes, geez, uh, Apple or Spotify or any of the places you get your podcasts, I may have recorded this a couple months ago and you don't even realize it. But I try to keep it as timely as possible. So, But make sure you subscribe to my Patreon. You get this for five bucks a month. Five bucks! You get all my podcasts and then for an extra five dollars. So for ten dollars, you get extra podcasts a week so you can listen to anything you want. Uh, and i uh, love to hear your feedback. It's uh, patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. I hope you enjoy that. And I'll enjoy all these conversations, but specifically right now, my guest today, Lucas Miles, the host of the, Christ- host of the Lucas Miles Show, 
and the author of the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Joined by my guest today, Tony Mazur here. Uh, joined by my guest, it's Lucas Miles. He is the host of the Lucas Miles Show, uh, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And that's his new book. And it's really interesting because in the last year, and I'm a Catholic, and it was really disheartening to see the response in messaging from the Catholic Church and Christians overall when it came to especially the COVID stuff and the lockdowns and, you know, destroying of private property and destroying of, uh, you know, talking about trying to to strip the uh, the tax-exempt status from churches and just hearing the response and the, the, the poor messaging. And, you know, I've been kind of going back and forth with family members, my dad included, and others about what is going on in Christianity, and especially personally in my church with the Catholic Church, it really, this has been a, a seems like a 60-year process of this spiraling into this social justice realm of, uh, and, and it's getting kind of radical in my opinion, of what's happened to the church where it's not the it's not the pre-Vatican II God-fearing type of church, and it, I guess it's kind of like this in some ways across the board with overall Christianity. And then now it's just la di da, pull your guitar out, and we're going to sing songs and praise Jesus and everything. We're like, so I, it, this is why this is a great book and it's a great topic to talk about. So Lucas, uh, get into what the kind of the genesis, no pun intended, of how you got into uh, uh, writing this book. Like what triggered you? into going, hey, this topic needs to be talked about because it's really not around there, and it just seems that it's kind of fallen by the wayside in Christianity. Um, you know, I've been tracing this topic for for some time now. Uh, I started I started preaching at 17. I'll be 42 this year, so that gives you an idea of kind of how long I've been doing this. Um, but specifically in the last, oh, I would say, you know, five or 10 years, my ears have sort of perked up on this topic. I'm not Catholic myself. I'm a Protestant, but the I live in South Bend, Indiana, which is one of the most Catholic cities outside of Boston and the Vatican, I think, that you can be in with the University of Notre Dame here. And, you know, I, I, I'm real, I have a real passion for church history, whether that be Catholic church history or Reformation church history. And, you know, this is something I, you know, I know you mentioned 60 years ago. It's from my, from my research, this has been going on much longer than that, although there's certainly been an acceleration in the last few decades. And so the book is called The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And really what I'm looking at and what I mean by the Christian left is that there is a growing constituency of, you know, at least so-called Christians who are um, have just become enamored with progressive ideology, uh, liberal theology and Marxist theory. And, you know, we saw this maybe uh, in, you know, uh, um, in you know, middle of the of the the nineteen hundreds, with liberation theology in in South America that started developing within the Catholic Church and kind of a Marxist uh, embrace that happened there. Uh, but certainly, I think that you know, um, Catholics who are paying attention today are very much aware of the progressive thought that the current Pope has brought into the Church and is continuing to bring into the Church. And, you know, it, it feels so oftentimes that there is this continuous push towards a universalist message, basically that all religions are the same, as many paths as you want to go to God is fine, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, you know, there's just a focus on unity, 
And from an earthly standpoint, unity is certainly a great thing. But spiritually speaking, if all religions are true, then Christianity by default cannot be true because Jesus made it very clear that he is the only way to the Father. And so, you know, what we are seeing is this erosion of the Christian faith and this distancing uh, and detachment from the scriptures and from any sort of, you know, really biblical historic version of Christianity. And it's a real dangerous thing. And I think that um, there are going to be some some major uh, um, uh, challenges that come out of this on the other side, you know, not only for the church, but also for this nation. Yeah, and there's also when you talk about uh, Reformation and you look through the text, whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the you know, the, the four Gospels, and there's always been, you, you've heard this push of, well, you know what, that was that was outdated, and we need to update, and it just seems now this acceleration of updating the text has happened way more often. Yeah. Like, it seemed like, okay, so maybe we're not saying Yahweh anymore, and maybe we're—so, like, there were certain changes, but it seems like every couple of years it's like, nope, we got to go through with the fine-tooth comb to look through the text and say, okay, yeah, that was said at one time, but what it really means by 2021 standards, I'm like, no, it's supposed to be a universal text, and this is why it's the speaking in tongues, and that's why it just go through the whole process of this, and it just, it's it's been something that's been bothering me the last you know, several years to the point where yeah, we're recording this on a Monday. So yesterday I, I went to church. I had to put my stupid mask on for the whole hour that I was in there. And I'm just hearing things. I'm like, wait a second. That's changed. We're not saying thy. And, you know, it, like I know it's somewhat old fashioned and I may seem like I'm kind of being a curmudgeon with it. But it's just that acceleration and the, you know, the more music that's in mass right now. And I'm like, I, I didn't go here for a concert. I mean, I miss concerts like anyone else, but I didn't go to church for a concert. So this this change that's like, is this a way? And, and I guess my roundabout question with this is, is this a way to get younger people into the church by promoting this more social justice uh, dogma, or is this, or is there something like a little bit more sinister and devious that's behind this? Sure. So one of the things that I, you know, really um, try to help people with in this book, especially some of the later chapters, is trying to distinguish, you know, what are the things that we really should be worked up about? You know, do I really need to be worked up about, you know, now we say the instead of, you know, the or, you know, whatever, you know, in some of these, uh, uh, some of these illustrations or, um, uh, you know, should I be upset about music changes or whatnot? You know, the reality is the biggest um, the biggest danger that we have, and really there's probably a couple here, you know, what I'm looking for is uh, are we still teaching the Lordship of Jesus? You know, that is something that is a non-negotiable for, for a Christian church of any denomination. Uh, are we still teaching the, um, this, the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that it is you know, without flaw, and it is, as you mentioned, this sort of everlasting, you know, text that lasts through the ages. Now, there are all sorts of different translations of Scripture, and that, that's been going on since, you know, the the, uh, the letters were first written in order to get them into various languages. You know, they, they've been put into Greek and Latin and, uh, you know, of course, English and German and, you know, Old English. We have all these different translations that exist. I'm not so much concerned with somebody modernizing a text into today's vernacular as long as they are set out in the objective of making sure that the vernacular they use today 
is staying true to the intent and meaning of the original language. Now, if I go in there and try to modernize a text based upon, say, today's morals, you know, what I have to then do is I have to be untrue to the original document in order to do that. And so, you know, translation within within, uh, um, you know, theology, I mean, it's an art and guys that are good at it are really, really good at it. And I would say most of the translations that are out there are, are really pretty good translations. It's hard to find kind of a bad Bible in that regard. But there are some that are rising up. There's translations that are using, you know, uh, the term he, she for God, you know, basically taking away God's mm. male gender. Uh, there are translations that are are changing some of the things, you know, in relationship to same sex, you know, uh, a marriage or gender issues. And they're trying to put in kind of this modern, you know, uh, um, spin into this. These the things that we're seeing today, this, this sort of uh, uh, progressive, you know, thoughts about sexuality or gender um, you know, these were these were present 2000 years ago when scripture was written. Those those ideas, homosexuality, transgenderism, these are not new concepts. The world has been seeing this for a really long time. We can go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, in the Old Testament. Uh, I've, I've read about 2000 pages of, of uh, Augustine this in the last year during the shutdown. And I can tell you in, you know, in the uh, the 300 and 400s, he was dealing you know, with these very same things. And so, um, you know, what we are seeing today is we are seeing an, uh, um, really an, uh, a developed and intentional um, pursuit to detach the church from scriptural, historic, biblical Christianity and really secularize it. And the left has already done this to the Jewish synagogue. I mean, certainly you can find Orthodox Jews that are still out there that still you know, follow Torah and these things. But there is a large number, and I would say probably more than most, of of Jews that have been secularized, especially in America. And now there is the same intention to go into the Catholic Church and to go into the Protestant Church to secularize those so that religion is really just in form and 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 we've really lost the faith aspect to to what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, it, that secular play and ploy that kind of ends up popping up, and it kind of starts very—it it starts very innocent. And I, I was reading about this because I, I don't—I don't know the the beginnings of this, but I remember seeing it a lot in the '90s, and when you were seeing the uh, in the early 2000s when everyone seemed to be wearing those Livestrong Lance Armstrong bracelets, but there were a lot of them that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? And on the surface, you would say, oh, no, that seems like a very good idea. What would Jesus do? Jesus was a, you know, uh, he he helped out the poor, he helped out the downtrodden, he did this, this, and this, and what, so if I'm going to do something that would harm uh, somebody else and uh, harm myself and put myself in a bad situation, I would have to just sit there and think, what would Jesus do? And, you know, again, on the surface, sounds like a good idea, but then I dug into it, and I think others, and I'm not sure if you have as well, that the the makings of it are very globalist and very secularized, mm-hmm. and to try to, you know, uh, to knock down uh, a, a few pegs of Christianity and kind of uh, kind of water it down and homogenize it when you know again, uh, uns- but by doing so in a very innocent sounding catchphrase. 
you know, so you see in the Old Testament, there's a story about the Tower of Babel, and this is early on in the book of Genesis, and so I'm sure some of your some of our listeners here are going to be familiar with that. And so the Tower of Babel was really in response to the flood of Noah, and after the Lord flooded the earth, of course, he promised he would never do that again. And But there was a group of people led by likely a guy named Nimrod that's mentioned in the Bible, and they build this tower basically reaching up into the heavens, which I'm sure is somewhat metaphorical in terms of how tall it was. And it, you know, it would be known today as what's called a ziggurat. And they build this and it essentially did a couple things. One, it placed them hopefully higher than the waterline so that if the world ever did flood again, that they would be above that, you know, being able to overcome. And it was really also this sort of sign of rebellion, you know, um, and when you read, you know, these things, I mean, there was a real intention in the Tower of Babel to rebel against God, to go against him. And ultimately, there were those at the time that were writing about the desire to slay God and basically punish him for flooding the earth. And, you know, what we see today is this desire to kind of go back to this Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, it was before language had been separated. Everybody spoke the same language. It was that homogenous thing that you're talking about. So what we're seeing is this globalist mindset to sort of return us all towards this same you know, uh, uniform, you know, idea. It's really laced with socialism. And this is one reason why I think socialism has to thrive for this agenda to take place is that, you know, it, it really makes us all the same, you know, and even like when you walk around outside or you go to the mall or you even mentioned in church right now and every single person, like I have a hard time even recognizing people right now because of these masks, you know, and I'm not trying to make this a statement about science or, or, you know, necessarily COVID, but we have we have homogenized society in such a way that you can't even recognize somebody when you walk by them right now, mm -hmm. because we literally all look the same. There's just sort of this this, uh, um, you know, uh, it's this monotone uh, sort of identity that's taking place in the world today. And if you don't you know, the reality is the left talks a lot about the separation of church and state as if they want that. And they they bark about it any single time that somebody, you know, any, any time that, you know, maybe a Christian is given, you know, place and. In, in prominence in society. But the reality is the left really doesn't want the separation of church and state. They want a church that's subservient to the state. They are looking to control the church. It's been the one entity that throughout the years they have been unable to fully capture. And that's what this book is about. The Christian left, our liberal thought has hijacked the church. The left is hijacking the church, attempting to come in, and they're bringing this Trojan horse, you know, that appears to be this great gift. You know, social justice appears on the surface to be a great gift until you realize that it's actually, in, in most cases, it's not just about loving your fellow man. It's about really, you know, building a utopia here on earth with no consideration about, you know, spiritual things or repentance, you know, or, uh, um, you know, eternity or, you know, anything to do with really the, the uh, historic biblical Christianity that I believe Jesus had in, in his mind. Yeah, that, uh, by the way, that text I was uh, mentioning, I just want to make sure for our listeners, was it was called the social gospel. And that's mm. where the what would Jesus do phrase came out. And, you know, for folks who kind of like me who know about that internet terminology, it's kind of like a, for blue-pilled Christians, is like a virtue signal to kind of showcase their social justice causes. So by doing that and saying, what would Jesus do? 
and you say, and then you you go, okay, what would Jesus do? You say, well, Jesus was an immigrant, so therefore Jesus would allow illegal immigrants <laughs> in the United States. And you know, Jesus didn't judge. Uh, you know, he he had discussions with Mary Magdalene, and he hung out with the the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the, and the lepers and this and that. So Jesus cared about everything, and he cared about women, which means. Jesus cared about abortion, and you start really using this as a cudgel in these social justice causes, and that's where it, it really kind of takes that uh, you know, that uh, baseball bat to the kneecap, and that's where a lot of that stuff comes out with the church's stance on abortion, the church's stance on gay marriage, the transgender thing, which, by the way, like you said, is not a new phenomenon. And if you kind of, if you study the falls of like the Roman Empire and the Greek exactly. Empire, a lot of this, uh, the transgender stuff was happening in those days as well. It's just right now it's popularized because of the internet and the more push towards this global reset. I know I'm sounding like Alex Jones, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting to that <laughs> point where you, it's something that we need to discuss. That's where that last week, that Mr. Potato Head situation, it's a cultural battle. And what we're going through right now is this fight between science and you know, free expression. And that's where that, that fight, and that's my next question here, is the where you have science and then you have quote-unquote science, and that's kind of being used as a leverage against uh, the church way before COVID, it was a lot of right. it was be because it's like, well, you know, there's no scientific evidence that God existed and the Shroud of Turin was was a fake and this and that and everything. And you're like, so it, a lot of this, these tactics had been used before. And then now with this push with social media and the, the pandemic, like Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste. We're kind of seeing that played out in real time here. You know, if you trace this back, it's really interesting. I'm a, I'm a big believer that you know, part of the downfall in our society is this, is when we lost kind of a classical approach to education. Um, you know, some of the some of the texts that have been read for really, you know, hundreds and thousands of years in in the training of, of students uh, have really been tossed by the wayside. And one of the major concepts that is that used to be taught in schools that's no longer taught today is really the sort of logic and the theory behind logic. How do you build an argument? How do you reason through a situation that's not just based upon emotion, that's actually based upon something that is categorically you know, true, and, and to be able to reason for this? Most of the evidence for God throughout the last 2,000 years has been based upon you know, this sort of philosophy that's really rooted in logic, being able to see, okay, if we are here today, we had to come from something. Is it possible that something came from nothing? Well, it could have been a dust ball floating through the atmosphere that just caught on fire and erupted to form the earth. Okay, where did that come from? And if you keep coming this, you know, going backwards, at some point you have to go to the place of what is reasonable? Is it more reasonable that there was literally nothing that existed and all of a sudden all of this here, you know, erupted and it's, and it's uh, organized and it's intelligent and everything else? Or does it make more sense that something created this? And, and so, you know, these sorts of arguments and this sort of thinking has been completely lost in society. It's so foreign, I think, for the modern student. It's not addressed at all. And we're getting, you know, this woke version of history, you know, in the same way, uh, we kind of alluded to this earlier, in the same way that we're seeing this revisionist history 
within the state, you know, uh, kind of reteaching, you know, we have things like, uh, you know, all these various, uh, you know, 1619 projects and these things that are out there. Um, you know, there's, there's also that same push within the church where we, where, where we have people that are making a really concerted effort to uh, reimagine and reinvent church history and, and even scripture in order to revise that to fit the today's agenda. Yeah, you know, there are entire books written about this and publishers that are really pushing this idea, especially in regards to some of these issues of sexuality and gender. And what you're kind of seeing with it's so funny because I talk about this with some of my friends who are they call themselves atheists or agnostic. And I, I think it's more agnostic because they always say, oh, I'm atheist. I don't believe in God. And I'm like, OK, well, do you believe in science? Well, yeah, science, of course. You know, why wouldn't you believe we have vaccines? We have this and that. And oh, what about this? Do you believe this? So it's like, well, yeah, absolutely. I believe this. I'm like, so it's not that you don't believe in God. You believe in some other being, this secular, this believing in science, believing, and ultimately, as uh, Michael Malice has, has, he hasn't coined the term, but he helped popularize it, it's called the cathedral, and this mindset of, you are a, you are a person who, you claim to not believe in God, capital G, but you believe in other gods with lowercase g, and you watch television, and so you're, in a way, you're, uh, religion is the state. So you believe exactly. in social justice stuff and you believe in gay marriage and transgender bathrooms and uh, uh, Medicare for all. And uh, you just go down the line of these very left wing, which, you know, at one time, you know, 10, 15 years ago were considered pretty radical causes, but it's kind of like the Bernie Sanders version of a religion. Then you go on television, you see a Rachel Maddow or you go to the Huffington Post. The, those are your televangelists and those are your it's it's your scripture is reading the New York Times or the Washington Post right now. So you start to realize that these are kind of tenets of a religion as well. It's not even a cult. A cult is one thing. This is a almost a full-fledged religion and you're seeing this very popularized right now among people that Again, these are people that will claim to not be religious. They'll say, oh, I was brought up Protestant, I was brought up Catholic, I was brought up Baptist, but I'm not that anymore. But So I don't believe, I don't believe in God, but then they believe in all these other things, and you're like, oh, so you are a religious person, but it's not of an organized religion, it's of this statist religion. You know, Bob Dylan said everybody's got to serve somebody, and I think that that is true. And what, what you know, I mentioned earlier, the left wants a church that's subservient to the state, so much so that the God of the Christians has to bow to the God of the state. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a true separation of church and state. It is the left wants dominion over the church. They want access to it. And again, this is not the first time this has happened in history. If you go back, I actually talk about in the book, The Christian Left, I talk about the, the, uh, the time during the Renaissance with the Medici family. The Medicis were a, you know, uh, they were a well-known, uh, a very prominent family in Italy, in Florence specifically, that um, they were heads of, of banks and, and, you know, ended up, uh, some of their, uh, some of the kids ended up becoming popes, specifically uh, Pope Leo X, who was the one that kind of Martin Luther uh, wrangled with the most. And it was really kind of a, a, a dark time in, in the Catholic Church. And I think that, you know, uh, thankfully, I think they've, you know, navigated through some of that in, in later, you know, in years after that. But during that time, you know, it was there was a real um, there was a real hijacking of the church for their purposes. And you, what you saw that's interesting, and I think you're seeing this today, was the way in which the church, this hijacked church, the state, and also the arts work together to bring about this agenda. 
you know, when we, you know, everybody's very familiar with the, you know, many of the artists from the Renaissance, specifically, you have, you know, kind of the, the uh, Leonardo and Raphael and, uh, you know, uh, da Vinci and these things that that were uh, that were there. And, and these guys were deeply connected to the Medici family, they were on the payroll, they did a lot of work for the Medici family. And it's interesting, they would do these really marvelous pieces of art for the church. But then you would have kind of uh, um, popes and politicians and, and bishops that were really corrupt, that would also bring these same artists over behind the scenes to do there's one example of of a bishop at that time who had Raphael, I believe it was, who did this whole painting in his bathroom of all this kind of nude, you know, pornography and and sex scenes and all these different things. And so here you have, you know, guys that were kind of working for the church with one hand and then also working for really this completely counter progressive movement with the other. And they were leveraging this power in order to bring about an agenda. We're seeing the same thing today. You know, we had Michelle Obama at the, I think it was the um, Grammys a couple of years back after one of Madonna's performances comes out with, you know, Rihanna and uh, um, Alicia Keys, I think it was, and starts going, amen, praise the Lord. Like that was, we, we all went to church today with that performance, you know. And it's this secularization of these terms. They're literally hijacking terminology from the faith in order to use it to describe and and sort of uphold these progressive moral, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of new neo morals that the left is trying to you know throw at everyone. And they're being quite successful in it. And the the crazy thing is that you also have co-conspirators in this within the Christian movements. Uh, I mean, I can tell you, and I'm, I won't necessarily, I, I do mention some names in the book, but, you know, for, for sake of conversation today, I mean, you have heads of major uh, uh, Christian film uh, groups that are atheists. You have, um, you know, I, I get calls all the time from, from filmmakers that are saying, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I want to make a Christian movie because I know they're really popular right now. Mm. And so they're going out into this industry to really capitalize on the dollars that are there, have no attachment to the message. And so it gets distorted along the way. And then we wonder why that we're ending up with something that really doesn't look anything like biblical Christianity any longer. Yeah, that's why I always call it uh, Jesus-splaining. So when they always talk about mansplaining, oh, you're mansplaining this to me, it's like it's when you see somebody who's a progressive who picks one out-of-context quote from the Bible and uses that and says, see, this is— and I'm like, yeah, what's the full context? Have you read the full the full verse, or are you just— right. Did you just Google something and Bible and just take one little bit of it? It's it's amazing, and but, I mean, that's what it is, is— you do have certain members of people, but the pro- who who do get who do get popularized and are Christians, whether they are in name only and they're kind of riding that wave, or they are true Christians and they're kind of crusaders. The problem is because of how our media is, and this is one of those times when you talk about that government media complex is that all of these factors are now together, and I, I think to myself uh, back in the. Uh, we'll go the counterculture movement in the 1960s is that you still had a the dominant generation of people who did go to church regularly uh prayed the rosary uh you know um evangelized and they did a lot of different uh, different things going you know going on in their lives and were very christian they they called themselves christian they were very active in the church maybe they met their spouse in church they went to school together and there was a lot more of that morality though you start seeing that fray in the 60s and into the 70s but in those days you still had kind of the, a, a counterculture where there was a checks and a balance of 
okay, we're going to put this character named Archie Bunker up there because we're going to make him look like a buffoon, like Norman Lear and all of them wanted to make him look like a buffoon. But then you realize how many people actually identified with Archie Bunker and said, no, that's my dad. And and people yeah. watching says, hey, that's kind of me uh, that they're talking about. So it almost had the opposite effect. The problem is nowadays is the oversaturation and the homogenization of at the entertainment industry, where if you do put out a Christian movie, it has to be like an absolute Christian undertone where somebody who is kind of in tune that can watch something like that, they can say, oh, I, I get the message, but it might be lost on a lot of other people unless they go discover it. Because you can't, because move, Christian movies or conservative movies that kind of bash over the message over, over somebody's head. They're gonna get bad ratings. They're gonna get uh, the critics are gonna beat them up. Uh, they understand that too. But you know, it, it's kind of a rock and a hard place right now when trying to promote the message right now. Yeah, and look, I you know, in addition to pastoring and writing, you know, I've I've done some film production in the past, so I've dabbled in that space. You know, um, and I know a lot of the players that are there. There are some good things that are coming out of. Uh, we'll call it Christian Hollywood, you know, for lack of a better term. And there, there's some really good projects in the works. Um, you know, there's a there's a great comedy coming out by uh, uh, actually Stephen Baldwin that um, is called Church People. It's just it's just a really funny movie that's not making fun of the church, but it's it's got a great message that comes through at the end. And I think that there's some good entertainment out there, you know, and and I think that, you know, there's a lot of other examples. I think even some of the, uh, you know, the the, the recent uh, movie that Caviezel did on the life of Paul, you know, was a was a really uh, a well done piece that came out from Sony's Affirm Films, um, you know, and there's some good players that are there. Uh, I think, though, that it's important that we recognize that there is this shift that has happened. And I think that, you know, the, what's really behind a lot of this, at least as far as, you know, American politics go is the left has realized that it can't win elections as long as the church is united on biblical historic Christianity. And so what they have to do is they have to disrupt that, they have to secularize it, they have to really divide it in some way. And they do that, uh, they can't just attack it from the outside. Attacks against the church have never been very successful. So if you wanna destroy the church, at least for a time, you have to do so by really injecting yourself within it to kind of tear it apart from within. And this is, you know, what I talk about in this book of, of the Christian left, of this Trojan horse aspect that the left has presented. And so what you have here is, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, the left seemed to be much more comfortable being looked at as sort of the godless party. You know, they took God out of their party platform and, you know, these things that they were kind of boasting about. Well, that has radically changed. And now what we are seeing is the left is trying to take this moral high ground as sort of really the keepers of religion. And, and this this sort of new form of Christianity. You know, in the book, I compare this to, and I want to be careful with this term because, you know, we, we, have, we live in a culture where, you know, anytime we see somebody that we don't agree with, we call them a Nazi, and I, that's not what I'm doing by this, but I do want to paint some parallels here in terms of this progressive thought. You know, within Nazi Germany during World War II specifically, there was, uh, there was a small subset of uh, Christian Nazis. They were basically progressive Christians who had um, identified with some of the desire to really create this sort of modern utopia on earth rather than pushing towards a kingdom that endures. And they were, uh, they were kind of led astray by, uh, by Hitler and the, the Nazi regime. And so they developed kind of within Nazism this term called positive Christianity. And positive Christianity essentially was a, 
it was a form of Christianity that that carried sort of all of the the you know it had the same vehicle as, as Christianity. It utilized the church. It utilized you know uh, um, you know church meetings and and the catechism and these different things. But it really cut away from it anything about repentance, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the lordship of Jesus. Jesus became the great social organizer rather than the savior of the world. It exchanged the you know. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for really this sort of, you know, uh, progressive idea of, you know, uh, inclusion and, you know, what we'd see today, diversity and social justice. You know, it kind of took on, you know, really the 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 the, um, the desires of the state. And so within positive Christianity in Nazi Germany, what they did was they actually replaced the crosses with swastikas and they replaced the Bible with Mein Kampf. And so, you know, we're not fully at that place here you know, in America yet, where, where people have made those, you know, that maybe at least it's, uh, uh, on any sort of large level, um, you know, broad level, that sort of radical change. But I think we're getting closer to the replacement of some of these things, even and I have this image on the cover of my book, the image for Christian socialism is the the uh, the communist sickle with a tilted cross. And I think that says exactly what they think about the cross. They are willing to sort of tilt the cross out of the way for this rise of a socialist Marxist mm. agenda uh, uh, rather than, you know, hold true to anything in regards to scripture or Christianity and elevate those things over their own ideas. You know, I although I tend to vote conservative and and would would probably be classified as as a, you know, a right leaning guy, I would I would set aside every single one of those beliefs in a second if I had to choose between that and my faith in Christ. And so, you know, but what we're seeing on the left, specifically within radical progressives, which is a lot of what we see on the left today, you know, in, in the past, you could find a Democrat who was pro-life. You know, it's it's hard to find that today. And so, you know, what we're seeing is this total abandonment of Judeo-Christian values, replacing those for these really uh, progressive ideas that are just constantly evolving and, and it is getting to the point to where I think that, you know, it is really uh, sending us out into these what I call these dark divergent waters of, uh, of postmodernism and, and, you know, progressive thinking. And it's it's uh, it's really scary, you know, what, what this is becoming. You did kind of see that over the years where you'd have like a lot of the the, you know, and we're both in the Midwest, uh, those blue collar Democrats where. You yes. know, you, you were, you know, your parents were FDR, uh, New Deal type of Democrats, and maybe you you voted for Kennedy and Truman or whatever. And a lot of, and, and I got to say, a lot of them grew up and they ended up going like, oh, this party's getting a little too radical for me. And they either switch parties or they don't vote anymore. But you did see the blue collar Democrats where they said, you know, we care about the union. We care about the small guy and everything. And then you would bring up the topic of abortion. They're like, look, you know, I'm. I'm, look, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Baptist and, and everything like I'm not in favor of abortion. But what you're seeing is with the the new style of because I don't even want to call them Democrats. I don't even want to call them liberals. They're progressives. And yes. what what kind of and, and leftists and what, what changes with that is you have to be all for their dogma. You can't be a pro-life Democrat anymore. You can't say you can't be pro-Second Amendment anymore. You can't say like, look, I believe in transgender rights. I believe in this, this, and this, and all this. And then dot, dot, dot. Um, but I still believe that we should have the opportunity to protect ourselves via the Second Amendment. And it's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? You're castigated out. You're thrown out 
uh, because it's like, how dare you? How dare you uh, look at the Second Amendment and think that we should be able to keep that and not repeal that? What do you mean we need a, an opportunity to in the, the right to bear arms, right? It's ridiculous. And But that's what's different about this other side, because it really is seems like it's progressives versus everyone else. It's not even just left or right anymore. It's progressives versus anyone else. And that's where, like you said, you you identify as a Christian before you would identify with a political party. These these people identify with their their gender, their uh, whatever gender they decide they are today, and they identify as these other factors as well as being a progressive. And you're like, well, wait a second, who who exactly are you? Because this just sounds like what you've been fed over time and the messaging. And and actually, that's where I kind of want to go next about the messaging over the last year. And to be honest, I, my faith has really been tested in the last year because I saw, and I kind of compare Christianity, like the Christian church, to what I saw uh, with the Libertarian Party. And I think the Libertarian Party is a very good party with great ideas and ideals, and they have a great message. But their messaging has been so poor that people are not taking them seriously. And just like with Christianity, you have such a great message, and it's not being conveyed properly. And what I saw over the last year, if we're talking about a a separation of church and state, well, what are the—the three things I really enjoyed in life— uh, at this time a year ago, so we're talking early March before lockdowns and before masks and everything, there were three things that me personally, Tony Mazer, enjoyed was I loved playing on my adult softball league, I loved going to the gym, and I loved going to church. And I went 0 for 3 a couple of weeks later. 0 for 3, and it, it caused a lot of these issues. And what did the church do? And it really just seemed like, well, you know, we'll see you guys when we reopen. Whenever whenever our governor decides that we can reopen. I mean, the liquor stores are still going to stay open. And uh, all these, uh, you know, the casinos, we can keep them open. You can do all this, but you can't come to church. And then when churches were starting to get uh, uh, rocks and bricks thrown through them during the, the, the Black Lives Matter riots that happened last summer— it was just a shrugging their shoulders, say, look, everyone has a right to a peaceful protest. And I'm like, this messaging is so poor right now. What do we do going forward as Christians where we're not going to be subservient to the government right now? And I just thought that, especially in my church, I'm not sure what it was like in most other churches, but I thought the Catholic Church completely dropped the ball in 2020, and I think you're going to end up seeing more of those repercussions down the road, possibly with other faiths as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you're you're identifying something that I think a lot of people feel. And, you know, early on with, you know, COVID, I think there were a lot of churches that, you know, said, hey, look, we're going to be the body of Christ right now. And if this is a problem for the, our nation or for our community, we're going to serve them. And so, you know, I mean, our church was making masks for first responders. And, you know, we had ladies sewing up things together. I had, you know, we had people making plastic face shields and stuff for the hospital when it was at a shortage. And I think the church did a really great job in the first week or two of this, and maybe even the first couple of weeks, looking for ways to help when all of us felt like, okay, this is a couple of weeks to stop the spread. And, you know, we can we can kind of set some of our agenda aside for the short term if it means kind of helping our, our brothers and sisters that are out there. But then over time, you know, and our church was shut down, kind of forced shut down for about a month. And we've been open ever since, um, you know, and just sort of, you know, and, and, and our position will stay that way. We won't close again, you know. Uh, and And the, you know, in this, I think that we started seeing that there was an agenda 
beyond just, you know, let's help the community. Uh, the agenda started really distancing itself from science uh, and, and any sort of, you know, actual data that we have about viruses and these things. And it just became very domineering. And, and I think that you started seeing this exposing that happening that happened through COVID is, you know, uh, I, man, I was shocked by some of these guys that I, I valued. I mean, there's some modern pastors that I like what they do. And I've, I've always thought they had a good message. A lot of them have, you know, done, been very successful on social media and, you know, Instagram and these things. But, you know, what you don't realize is how you build your platform is also how you're going to have to keep your platform. So if you're building your pa platform just by pandering to, you know, culture you have to keep your platform by pandering to culture and so you know i think we saw that happen uh you know really very evidently this last year by um you know the number of pastors that just kind of became quote unquote woke you know and and they uh their language changed their their focus changed and it really started feeling like um you know there was a total detachment from the gospel in favor of whatever was in vogue in culture, which at that time it was the BLM organization, which, you know, is rooted in Marxist ideology, you know, can, can, you know, on their own website speaks out against, you know, uh, the nuclear family and these things. And we've seen the scandals of much of the money that was given to the BLM organization never actually ended up in the local communities. You know, it was just really a ruse to, you know, uh, uh, lead people astray. Now, here's the sad thing is there was a righteous cause behind all of that that I think deserved conversation and deserved opportunity to be heard, but it was completely thwarted by leftists that came in and, and you know, and, and then later, you know, with Antifa and the violence and everything else that erupted. And so, and unfortunately the church did a poor job, I think, uh, um, you know, specifically within this country of, of really communicating truth on those issues for fear of losing their 501c3 or for fear of getting canceled or just for fear of maybe losing their people. And, you know, I lost uh, we lost 40 percent of our church uh, in 2016 when Trump got elected, 40 uh, percent. And, you know, we're in a we're in a blue county in a red state, you know, and at that time we were kind of under the the rule and reign of uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, you know, who is is not really a Democrat, but is a is, you know, is a leftist and Marxist and and, you know, perfect example, poster child of the Christian left. You know, he's spouting religious ideas. He's spouting as if he's a teacher of faith, talking about Jesus, when in actuality he is, you know, completely let go of things like repentance, forgiveness of sins, any sort of, you know, call to the lordship of Jesus and, you know, uh, and an and elevation of his own personal agenda. And, and I think that, you know, we are seeing this on the rise. And this is really, you know, this is why I want to get this book in people's hands, uh, because I think that people need to educate themselves on it. They need to know how to sort through fact from fiction when it comes to, you know, the twisting of, uh, of the faith. And I think they need sort of a litmus test in their hands that they can look at their current church, even that they're attending and say, you know, is this is my church being impacted by leftist thought? And if so, what do I do about it? Yeah. Oh boy, the Pete Buttigieg, when he was doing the doing that song and dance about uh, uh, quoting quoting scripture and then yeah joe biden no oh, he's a staunch catholic he goes to church i'm like first of all i mean if you uh, I'll, I'll say i was gonna say if, if joe biden thought he was in a church he probably thought he was at a baskin robbins we he's at that point uh nancy pelosi is a staunch catholic come on it's it's not but it's that watering down of of these these the christian beliefs and by going no 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 see nancy pelosi she does care because she's catholic i'm like come on 
Who is buying this at this point? But apparently there are people that are doing that. Um, but I guess going forward and, you know, as we start to wrap up the conversation, um, you know, we've seen these uh, cases over the last few years of, of uh, the number of Christians that are dwindling. Uh, and it's going like that with the kind of by, by the way of the dodo bird in some ways where the greatest generation and even some baby boomers are dropping off. And because of that, the Gen, the Gen Y, the Millennials, and Gen Z, eh, not necessarily going to church uh, that often. And I know that there's always these pl- uh, these ploys of trying to get the kids back into church by saying, "No, no, we got multimedia slideshows, and we've got uh, we got more music that we sing to." And I'm, I'm like, again, I, I don't want to go for a, a concert. I want to go to church. I want to I want to read. I want to think. I want to listen. I want to do this. And it should be should be there, but the promotion of trying to get the younger generation of kids to either come back to the church or stay in the church. Because I, I, when I was growing up, you know, I, you know, probably three quarters of my class used to go to church. And if I went now, I'm sure I think there's like one or two still do that. And everyone else just, yeah, it's, I, I used to go to church. I, yeah, I was raised Catholic. I'll sometimes go to midnight mass or I'll go to Easter services. But you know, and especially going forward, where a lot of places that have been locked down more don't haven't been able to go to church. So it's just it's now in the psyche and the mindset of people are just going like, all right, well maybe I'll just pray at home and I'll say an Our Father here or there. Or maybe I'll tune into a virtual church where everyone's wearing masks and I can't uh, really participate or do anything. So where where do we go right now as we head towards you know through 2021? I mean, your your book is a great guide of what we should do, and, and that we need to get this book in the hands of younger generations of people saying, "Look, there's more to life than just believing what Dr. Fauci has to say. There's there's bigger people and more uh, more all knowing people that we should look up to." But where do we go right now? Because it really seems like, uh, you know, again, when I said about blue pilled and red pilled, there's the difference. There's also black pilled and white pilled. White pilled is, hey, there's a silver lining, and that uh, we there's something we can learn and we can come out on the other side with optimism. Blackpilling is everything's going to hell right now, almost literally and mainly figuratively, and there's really no hope of what we have going forward. So is there hope going forward? Do, are we seeing those pockets pop up with younger generations embrace or are, you know, have, have, has the, I don't even want to say mainstream media, but has the corporate press kind of had this uh, stranglehold for, and just saying, hey, no, you don't need to go to church. Watch this Marvel movie. Watch Star Wars. Hey, here's an animated flick. Here, do this. Here, go on your phone. Play this video game. Play this. And is that having some kind of a real adverse negative effect on the younger generation? Well, it's certainly having an adverse effect. And, you know, anytime uh, I, I, I give the illustration oftentimes of, of, you know, a piece of genetically engineered fruit. Um, you know, you have if you think of two oranges, there's an orange with seeds in it. It's the natural orange. It's the organic orange. It's the real deal. But it's kind of a pain to eat because you have to spit out these seeds or eat around them, you know, and it gets messy. And if you have a seedless orange, they're clean. You know, you can kind of peel it and eat it on the go and in your car and you don't have to really worry about spitting anything out. And and I think that's kind of what's happened to the church is, you know, that somewhere along the lines, we saw this in the Protestant movement through secret sensitive churches and and then on into the social justice you know movement is there were certain things that just felt messy about the Christian faith. Um, things like baptism, things like the sacraments, things like 
you know, the Lordship of Jesus, reading scripture, those things just felt kind of messy and obtruse and, and you know, uh, burdensome. And so we just started pulling some of those out. Now, it worked for kind of a generation. We gave them this really kind of, you know, clean sort of quick way to to find this personal relationship with Jesus. And I think there was a lot of genuine faith decisions that were made during that time. But the problem with the, with the genetically engineered piece of fruit is not the first iteration of it. It's always the second iteration because it's incapable of, of uh, reproducing itself because the very thing that it needs for reproduction, the seed, has been removed. In this case, the church has been the word of God. It's been stripped away from this entity. And so it was able to sustain for a generation. But now that we're in the second iteration of that movement, it really is lacking the ability to be able to reproduce itself. You know, I would say that, you know, first of all, I would encourage everybody grab a copy of this book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. It can be a roadmap through this time. And I would also say get a copy for your pastor or your priest or your Sunday school teacher, you know, or whatever that is, because you know, let's start creating this conversation and bringing people back to biblical and historic Christianity. For the people of God, there's always hope. You know, there is always hope. You know, we believe that God wins in the end, that he redeems his people, that he restores his church. That doesn't mean that there's hope for every single person if they are going to rebel against the things of God. And so if people are going to, you know, shrug this off, not pay any attention to, you know, who God is, not give their life to his lordship or dominion, I, I think that that affects our nation. I think that affects people's eternal salvation. I'm not here in this book to say who's saved and who's not saved, which denomination is necessarily better than another denomination. But what I am saying is if we are serious about our faith, then we must be serious about the Lordship of Jesus. We must also be serious about our attachment to Scripture. And any time we disconnect ourselves from either one of those things, more so than whether or not we're using technology in church or not using technology in church, or we have instruments or don't have instruments, those things, I think, matter much less than whether or not we are actually connecting ourselves to the Word. And, and so that is something that we should look for. We should also be asking questions of, what does my church teach about, about um, same-sex marriage? What is it, does it still believe in a, in a traditional view of marriage? What does it teach about gender and sexuality? What does it teach about, you know, things like abortion and pro-life topics? You know, where does it stand on these issues? Those are sort of the canary in the cage that will give you insight in terms of whether or not your church has really drifted to the left. And so I think we need to be smart. We need to educate ourselves. We need to hold fast to what we believe. And more importantly, we need to hold fast to the word of God. And, you know, I'm hoping that this book, uh, The Christian Left, can really, you know, help guide people on, on how to do that more so and really uh, to be aware of some of the, the pitfalls and dangers that are out there. The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church by Lucas Miles. Uh, please go pick it up. It's a great book and it's a great conversation. By the way, before we let you go, talk about uh, the Influence Network. Yeah, so the Influence Network, uh, we really started as a church planning uh, network. So we've we've planted uh, churches uh, quite a bit in East Africa. I think we've done over 40 churches just in Kenya alone. We're based here in South Bend, Indiana. We have a local church here that I teach at uh, uh, almost every week, unless I'm on the road uh, for another speaking engagement. Uh, and they can find us online. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, um, you know, as, as well as um, pretty easy to find on, on social media as well. Doing some great stuff, looking for people to stand with us and, and really uh, walk down this road of, of protecting the church from radicalism on the left and the right. Very nice. The Influence Network, and uh, he's a pastor, uh, Lucas Miles. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, one of these times I'll, I'll have to meet up with you when I go to South Bend. I want to check out one of the—the uh, the Cubs still play there, right? The uh, minor league yeah, team? Yeah, South Bend Cubs. Yes, absolutely. We'd love to, love to have you out, and uh, uh, that'd be great to connect. Absolutely. Lucas, thanks so much.